0: Well, good morning. Welcome back. We're glad y'all are here. I uh, hope you had a fabulous break and good time off. And uh, we know you're ready to start school again on Tuesday, right? Okay, good. But yeah, we're glad you guys are back and excited to begin the book of Philippians with y'all. You are in luck since you came back a couple days before school starts. We're going to start Philippians this morning. So if you'll turn to the book of Philippians chapter 1. One ministry-related announcement I want to make as well is that our uh, if you're interested in going on one of our summer missions projects, the applications for those are now up online. You can get on there and apply anytime. Uh, we have three trips. Uh, one goes to East Asia. One is to a Muslim context. We call it Trade Winds, And then the other goes to Greece. Uh, If you have not been on an overseas mission trip, uh, I would really challenge you during your time in college, do that. You can take the five, six weeks, uh, you'll still be back in time for the second summer session. And uh, if there's not a real compelling reason why you shouldn't go, I just would encourage you, it will change your life, your perspective of the world, uh, your perspective of God and what he's doing around the world. So uh, you can go to our website, grace-bible.org, just go to the college page and you'll be able to find the link there to those mission trips applications. Those are due in early February. All right, Philippians chapter one. I'm just going to read the first couple of verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study it this morning. We thank you that because of Jesus Christ, we have life eternal. We know that we will live and reign with you and your son Jesus forever and ever. We thank you that because of his death and resurrection, our sin no longer condemns us, but instead we have freedom and new life. And I pray that we would live in such a way that we proclaim your mercy to the world. And that would be the highest priority. As we just saying, we pray that our lives would testify that there's nobody higher, nobody greater than you, our God. As we study your word this morning, I pray that you would move in our minds, open up our minds, remove distractions and confusion. Make me clear in what I say. Allow us to understand your word. I pray that you would move in our hearts, that the resistance and the sinfulness and the rebellion that is in there, Father, would not keep us from submitting ourselves to you in obedience. And then, Father, empower our hands and our feet, our mouths, our eyes, our minds to do your service. We thank you. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, on Christmas Eve, 2009, two professional basketball players, uh, Gilbert Arenas and uh, Javaris Crittenden, were playing cards in their locker room. They were both Washington Wizards, and uh, they began to get into a dispute. Crittenden said that Arenas owed him $25,000 in gambling debts from other card games that they had played. He said, uh, Arenas returned back and said, I'm not going to pay those. Uh, Crittenden at that point apparently shouted something like, I'm not your punk, Uh, at which point Arenas reached down beside him and pulled out a pistol and pointed it at his teammate's head. Apparently, his teammate also had a pistol nearby, reached down and pulled it. And the two guys, these two basketball players on the same team, pointing guns at each other in their own locker room. Made huge news. The next day, both of them said, ah, it's you know, just us blowing off some steam, not really that big a deal. We're buddies. I love him. We've set it aside. Now, uh, I can't imagine how you would move on from that if a coworker actually pulled a gun and pointed it at your head. How do you have that conversation, you know, the next day? Uh, About yesterday. Let's just blow that off, right? I can't imagine. Uh, They seem to have forgotten that they were on the same team, right? When you're on the same team, you're working for the same goals. And so sometimes you set aside smaller disputes and distractions. Can you guys imagine if we came in here this morning and uh, Jamie played a song I didn't like? And I said, "I I I don't like that song, The Stand. And I pull out a gun. Right? Stop playing it. I said, we're going to play how great is our God. Can you imagine? Right? We're on the same team. We share the same goals. And uh, it's easy to forget when you're in a working environment. It's easy to forget, I'm sure, uh, for professional athletes. It's easy to forget for all of us. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, we're on the same team. Right before Jesus ascended into heaven, he called his disciples to a task that we are now called to, and that is to make more disciples or followers of Jesus. He says, go into all of the nations and make disciples. Teach them to obey everything I commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It says, I'll be with you always for that task. And so if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that is the mission of your life and all other desires and goals and rights subordinate to that. And so that means that in the midst of living life with one another, there are times we're called to set aside what we may want to do, the things we may want to win. We're called to set those things aside for the sake of the gospel. But you and I struggle with that. At least I do. As I think about uh, my days, typically much of my time is spent on what I feel, what will make me happy. I think about how the people around me think about me, try to impress them. I think about the things that annoy me about what other people say and do, and I want them to stop it so I will feel better. I get into disputes at times with my wife and my kids because I assert my perceived rights instead of submitting to Jesus Christ. Maybe you can relate in your relationships with your roommates or your parents while you were at home. Maybe it is that as you think about your future, although you know that you ought to be a disciple of Jesus Christ first and a lawyer, architect, engineer business person. Second, you find yourself arranging the priorities of your life around what you want to do and what will make you primarily happy, even if that is at the expense of pursuing the gospel of Jesus Christ with your life. It's a challenge for all of us. What's interesting is, as you read the New Testament, it doesn't seem like this is a new problem. As you read the books of the New Testament, what you see is Paul is continually urging the people that he's talking to, the churches he's talking to, to set aside distractions, set aside the pursuit of your personal gain, your personal rights, and focus on this one thing, that you are a partner with Jesus Christ in spreading the message of his death and resurrection around the world. So you set those things aside. Uh, The book of Philippians is such a book. It's written to a group of people who are facing all kinds of conflict, both within the church And outside the church, they're facing external pressures from false gospels, people who are coming in and telling them things about Jesus that aren't right. And they're facing internal pressures as well. Their members are getting into squabbles and they're struggling. And they're tempted to be distracted from the pursuit of the gospel. And Paul loves this church. As you read this book, you see that this is a group of men and women that Paul deeply cares about. And so he writes this letter to encourage them. It's one of the most practical books in the New Testament. It deals with things like contentment. I don't have enough money and I need more. How can I be content? Deals with things like humility. Deals with things like setting aside your personal privilege. So it answers that question of what do I do when my roommate consistently borrows my clothes without asking? Or takes my hot sauce and eats it all. How do I handle that? I mean, it doesn't, it's not directly in there, right? But, but it deals with how you deal with situations like that. It's one of the most practical books in the New Testament. Let me give you just a little bit of background of uh, the book of Philippians and the church in Philippi. After Paul became a Christian, remember, Paul, prior to becoming a Christian, had been a persecutor of the church. After he became a Christian, he's commissioned by the apostles to go around and, and to share the gospel with the Gentiles. And so he goes on one missionary journey all throughout Asia Minor, this region that's now uh, kind of where Turkey is. And he goes throughout that area and he shares the gospel. He comes back to Antioch where he was commissioned from. And he and Barnabas decide they're going to go out on a second missionary journey and they're going to strengthen the churches that they went to before. Now, he and Barnabas have a dispute and uh, they end up parting ways, and so Paul takes Silas, Barnabas takes another guy, and they go off in a different direction, but this second missionary journey, you can see it, traces it here, right? Paul starts off from Jerusalem, goes up through Antioch, he goes back through these two areas, Derby and Lystra, that he had been in before, and then he comes up through this region of Asia Minor, and his plan is that he was going to go up into Bithynia, and Pontus, and these areas, and begin to share the gospel. Now, as you look at Acts 16, it says, we were going to go up into these areas, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't let us do that. Somehow God stopped them from going into Asia. So Paul experiences this sort of disappointment. He goes to sleep one night, and he has a dream. A man from Macedonia is calling to Paul in his dream and says, come over to Macedonia and help us. Alright, right, so here's Macedonia over here. So Paul gets on a boat here in Troas, sails across the Aegean Sea, this little strait here, ends up in Neapolis and ultimately in this city, Philippi. Now, Philippi is a Roman colony. And uh, the citizens of Philippi, they were unique in this, that they actually had full Roman citizenship. That meant that they didn't have to pay taxes, That meant that they couldn't be put in jail without a trial. This is a unique area because these are full Roman citizens, even though they're outside of the city of Rome. It's a very important city in the history of Rome. Paul goes to Philippi and he establishes this church there. This is about AD 51. He establishes this church. The first people in the church actually were women, Uh, a woman named Lydia who uh, sold cloth Wealthy woman comes and she listens to him. She believes the gospel. Her household believes the gospel. And they develop this new church in Philippi. They begin to preach the gospel. Paul casts a demon out of a slave girl who's telling the future. The people who owned that slave girl didn't like that because they can no longer make money off the fact that she told the future. They toss Paul and Silas into jail. Paul and Silas sing hymns in the middle of the night. The jail shakes. Doors are open. The jailer freaks out because everybody's left except for everybody hadn't. Still sitting there, Paul and Silas say, we're still here. This jailer says, how can I be saved? Paul preaches that famous verse, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And then he leaves Philippi and he leaves this church behind in good capable hands and he goes along with the rest of his missionary journey. Nearly 10 years later, Paul finds himself in prison again, eighty sixty, and he writes them another, he writes them a letter to encourage them and strengthen them. It seems like they had found out that he was in prison. They loved him so much, they sent him a gift while he was in prison. And Paul writes them the book of Philippians as kind of a thank you note, but also a note of stand strong. Remember the things I told you at first, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Preach that message, live that message, set aside everything else for that message. That's what the book of Philippians is ultimately about. And so, all throughout this book, you see Paul centering around this theme of how can you partner in the gospel in a way that will allow you to be effective in the service of Jesus Christ. And there's some key principles for you and me in this book. We're going to look at three quickly this morning. And like I say, this is an extremely practical book, but all of the commands, all of the book centers around how can you and I be effective in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and being his representatives. All right, what are the key principles that we see from this book? All right, the first one is this. The gospel supersedes our personal desires. Gospel supersedes our personal desires. Let me read a couple of passages for you. First of all, chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. I rejoice. All right, Paul finds himself in prison, probably in prison in Rome. And I love this passage because here Paul says, look, my imprisonment has actually emboldened some people to preach the gospel. And so if it takes me being in prison, sitting behind bars, losing my freedom to spread the gospel, so be it. What's crazy is that some of the people who were preaching the gospel were doing so actually to cause problems for Paul. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on, but it seems like there were people who had maybe some minor theological differences with Paul. They may have agreed on the substance of the gospel, but they had some differences with Paul, and so they take the advantage of the fact that Paul is in jail, and they say, this is our opportunity. We'll build our own little churches. We'll go out, preach the gospel, and gather converts and leave Paul in the dust. Now, if you're a pastor, that might be devastating to you. I mean, there's other people trying to to steal your flock, and yet Paul says this, if the gospel is preached, I rejoice. Because it's not about Paul. It's about Jesus Christ. Another passage, chapter two, verses three through five. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but consider others better than yourselves. That's very different from the way that our culture teaches us, isn't it? If you turn on you know, the Oprah show when it was on, what was the thing you were most likely to hear? Before you can care about anybody else, you need to care about yourself, right? You're the most important. Take care of you. Paul says something absolutely antithetical to that. Consider others better than yourselves. Set aside your rights. As we go through chapter two, we're gonna see Jesus as the preeminent example of that. Shortly after Shannon and I got married, I was talking to uh, an older man who'd been married for years and he asked my wife and me, what what are your favorite books that you like to read? And uh, Shannon said her favorite book is Pride and Prejudice uh, by Jane Austen. Uh, written, I don't know, 2,000 years ago, something like that. It was written a long time ago. Uh, now, I, I said that, uh, he said, have you ever read that? And I said, well, no. I mean, you know, I've never never read that. And he, this guy looks at me and he goes, how have you never read your wife's favorite book? It's like, well, you know, it just never came up when I was Picking books to read. It wasn't first on the shelf. You know, it's like here's John Grisham and Jane Austen. All right, you know, I'll pull this out. And so uh, you know, I wasn't gonna do that. Well, I picked it up and I decided to read it, and I read it. Why? I read it because I love her. I wouldn't have read this when I was in college. All right, my roommates come in, what are you reading? I love this book, right? (laughs) There's this this Elizabeth Bennett and, and she just she wants to get married but she doesn't kind of like this Mr. Darcy and he doesn't kind of like her. And then, but they start to like each other. They become friends and they respect each other. And then guess what happens? They get married, right? <laughs> right, I wouldn't have done that, okay? Now, why did I read the book? Because I love my wife. Now, it turns out it actually was, it wasn't, wasn't too bad, right? But I read it because I love her. Now, vice versa. She's watched a lot of movies, read a lot of books, does a lot of things, not because they're her preference, but because she loves me. And as you look at the book of Philippians, and you, as you look at the New Testament, uh, it challenges us to this principle, that the things that we do, the things that we say, we do them not because they always make us happy, but because we love Jesus. The gospel sometimes asks us to do difficult things, to be willing to lose a conflict That's a hard thing to do. To be willing to give of our time and our money and our energy in ways that are sacrificial, even when we are tired, even when we feel poor, even when we feel like we don't have a lot of time. Why does it ask those things of us? Not so we can earn our way to heaven. We'll talk about that in a moment. But because if you know Jesus Christ, you're called to live like he lived so, the world can see the character of Jesus reflected in you. And so, all of the personal rights that I want to cling to, we're real big on rights in this country. It says, now you set those aside. You consider others better than yourself, because that's what Jesus did, and that's what, how Jesus loves. So, the gospel supersedes our personal desires. Secondly, the gospel destroys our self-righteousness, destroys our self-righteousness. Chapter three, starting in verse seven. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of his resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, "I was a Pharisee, okay, in the first half of this chapter, a Pharisee, that was the, the greatest religious leader. In the first century in Israel. And he says, I knew the law. I knew what I should do. And so I had it all lined up. I'm circumcised on the eighth day as to the keeping of the law. I'm blameless. I'm a Pharisee. All of this stuff. But he says, now I count that as rubbish. So that I may gain Christ and I seek the righteousness that comes from Christ. And the issue that Paul gets at is that prior to knowing Jesus Christ, all of the things that he did to be good, right? That's self-righteousness is I'm going to be good for my own sake, so I can feel proud of myself, so mom and dad will be impressed, so my friends will think I'm cool, so I compare favorably to others. He says, all of that I consider as filth, as rubbish, compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. How many of you guys made New Year's resolutions? Okay, good number of you. How many of you have already broken them? Okay about the same number, okay? How many of you didn't bother to make them because you've made them and broken them so many times before? All right. That's, that's an even bigger number, right? I ran across an uh, article this past week, a, a study that talked about why we break our New Year's resolution. So you begin the year and you say, uh, I'm going to lose weight or uh, I'm going to be nice to my roommate." or whatever it may be. Uh, I'm going to exercise. And what happens is that you and I, we lack the self-control to do that. It was a fascinating article from a secular perspective saying, you and I fundamentally lack self-control. If I put a a big tub of ice cream up here, and I set it up here, and I say, uh, some of you are dieting, don't eat that. All right. But then then I kind of get you stressed, right? I stress you out. Either I give you a bunch of things to remember or I start talking about school and how it's going to be tough this semester. You get stressed out and you're going to get worried. And uh, most of you are going to come and start eating this, right? Because we lack self-control. And it was interesting, this article said that the only real ways to avoid that problem is simply not to have it there in the first place. It it was interesting. It made this interesting point. It said the the unsuccessful dieter will have three tubs of ice cream in their freezer and go, I can't eat that, right? Until their self-control gives out and then they'll open it and they'll eat it. The successful one just doesn't walk down that aisle in the grocery store at all. But it also said there was something else. You have to retrain your mind to focus on those things that are positive and good and not at all related to what you're trying to avoid. And I thought it was interesting because... As we look at this concept of the righteousness of God found in Jesus Christ, Paul talks about self-righteousness and what self-righteousness fundamentally is, is it sets up a list of rules. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not do this. Do this. Be nice to people. Give your money. And and you look at those and you go, okay, here I go. Right? I'm going to do this. And you dive in and, and you always fail. You always fail. Because the power with which you're trying to do those things is limited to you and you don't have it. You don't have the self-control and the motivation is limited to bolstering your own self-worth or pride or prestige and that's not a good enough motivation. And what Paul says is I left all that behind, all that self-righteousness. Instead, what I did is I poured myself into the person of Jesus Christ and I seek the righteousness that is found in Jesus all right, now the actions he may do may look the same. He's still going to give to the poor. He's still going to avoid impurity. But the two things that are different, one is the motivation. Now I'm doing it because I love Jesus Christ and he loves me. And I want to show the world what he's like. And two, the power with which I do it is different. That's Romans 6 right there. The law could not accomplish righteousness for us because we, we lack what it takes. But the Holy Spirit, if you believe in Jesus, now lives within you. The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And so I rely upon that because I can't do it. Gospel of Jesus Christ destroys your self-righteousness. There may be some in here who you don't yet know Jesus Christ, and you're thinking, I'm going to earn my way to God's favor. Basically, your life is put stuff on a scale, If I do more good stuff than bad stuff, God will approve of me, right? Biblically, that's a total lie. But what we rely upon is the fact that Jesus Christ died for you and me to pay the penalty of our sin because we're in such a deep debt, we can never dig out of it. And he rose again. He defeated death and sin. And this is part of the great news that when he rose again and then he ascended into heaven, he sent his spirit to live in our heart if we believe in him. So I don't have to trust in my self-control and my righteousness anymore. Instead, I trust in Jesus Christ. It's been fascinating to watch all of the coverage of Tim Tebow the last several weeks and months. It's been really interesting to see. And I think the reason that it's been so interesting to see is because as I've watched all of the media articles, most of it is centered around, is this guy for real? How could somebody be so consistently kind Uh, care more about people than the little brown ball? How could somebody really believe all of this Jesus stuff that he says he believes? It's been interesting to watch because I I have no doubt that Tebow is far from perfect. I don't know the man. I've never met him. But I've no doubt that he struggles. And yet I think what's been amazing is all along, if you listen to him talk, he never points it back to, yeah, you're right, I, I, I don't cuss. And that's, man, that's pretty cool. I'm very nice. Come with me. I'm going to give some stuff to some little children. Right? He never does any of that. It's been amazing to watch that all through this, the focus has been on, at least from his mouth, here's why I do this. Because Jesus loves me. And I love him back. And I don't do this so you can think I'm so cool. I do this because of who my Savior is. Now again, He's not perfect. He's just a guy. But I find it fascinating that our world really, really struggles to understand the righteousness that is found in Christ as opposed to the righteousness we try to build up in our own effort. And if you and I will seek out the righteousness of Christ, you may not be a 24-hour news item, but people will notice the person of Jesus Christ. It destroys self-righteousness to elevate the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then third, The gospel promises us heavenly citizenship. Look at chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. Sorry, chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our citizenship is is in heaven. The gospel promises us a citizenship that is above and beyond this world. In other words, this world's citizenship is one that says you can make the world a better place by working hard, by seeking your own righteousness. This world tells us that we can make things better if we elect the right leaders we get the right people in place. And yet the reality is we know that that's really not true, is it? saw a study just from this past week or so done by Harvard. It said 55% of today's college students think the country is going the wrong direction. 32% aren't sure, and only 12% 12 percent think it's going the right way. Hey, here's what's interesting. In the last election, 61% of college students voted for Obama. That's a pretty big margin. But most of them, more than 50% now, disapprove of his job performance. Now, I say that not to make a commentary on President Obama or his job performance, but simply to say this, that often what we believe will become our salvation disillusions us. Because we look to people. We look to their righteousness, and we look to the structures of this government. I mentioned before that the people of Philippi, they were proud of the fact that they were Roman citizens, And yet they were experiencing this tension because uh, their allegiance to Jesus Christ often came in conflict with their allegiance to Rome because they would not worship the emperor. Roman emperors tended to say, yeah, you can worship this Jesus guy as long as you also worship the emperor. Christians said, we won't do that. And it created this friction. And over time, some of them ended up dying for their faith. And yet they were proud of their Roman citizenship. Just like you and I, we love our country. We love living here and being a part of it. And yet there's this tension between being a citizen of this country and a citizen of heaven. And how do we reconcile that? I think we reconcile that by saying, uh, I recognize my full citizenship, my ultimate citizenship rests in heaven with Jesus Christ. And here's what's great. One day Jesus Christ will come and he will establish his kingdom here on earth. And so my goal in the meanwhile is not to disengage. I don't say I'm not going to be any part of this earth. Nor is my goal to say I'm going to dive in and give all of my energy and all of my time and all of my effort to the kingdoms of this world. But instead I say what I'm going to do is I'm going to represent the values of heaven here and now so that more and more people will sign up for heavenly citizenship. That's what I'm called to do, to represent the values of heaven here. Several years ago, Shannon and I worked for a summer at a camp in upstate New York, and uh, we loved it, but uh, the culture was a little bit different up there. Their idea of hot sauce was like paste, mild, picante, you know? They didn't say the word y'all at all. Uh, They said things like "use guys, which isn't really a word at all, right? It it doesn't make any sense. and uh, It was just uh, a very different culture. And so uh, what I endeavored to do was demonstrate to them the superiority of Texas culture, right? So I made them real salsa with fresh ingredients. Uh, I used the word y'all a lot. Uh, They laughed at me for a while, and then they began using it as well, right? because it's better than use guys, okay? It's one word instead of two. Now, what was my goal? I wanted to represent Texas in New York. I didn't sit on the side of a hill and go, I wish I was back in Texas. Nor did I insist that they all begin, you know, wearing cowboy hats and boots or whatever it was. But instead I said, I'm just going to represent my home here. That's what we're called to do as citizens of heaven, say, I'm going to represent Jesus Christ here and now. I'm going to represent the righteousness of of God and Jesus Christ. And I'm going to rely upon his spirit to do that. I'll come before him in humility and pray, God, give me your righteousness, not my own, for your motivations through your power. I'm going to set aside my own rights in the way that I eat and drink, the way that I speak to others, the way I interact with my roommates, the way I vote and engage with politics, the way I think about my career and my future, the way I think about dating. I'm going to set aside my preferences so I can reflect the values of my heavenly citizenship. That's what the book of Philippians will consistently challenge us to do to make our partnership with the gospel of Jesus Christ the highest priority of our lives. So let me ask you as we close, what, what do you value more than anything else? What do you value more than anything else? When you think about your life, you think if I could have a successful life, it would be this. How do you fill in that blank? Is it a particular job? Is it a particular type of family? Is it a particular type of acclaim from others? Be honest. What do you value more than anything else? I think like you guys at times, it's hard because there are times realistically that if I answer that question, the answer would be something like, I value providing a comfortable lifestyle for me and my family. I value having people pay attention to me and what I say. What do you value more than anything else? And how can we begin to round the corner and say, what I want to do is I want to value the things of heaven and be a partner in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as he's called me to do. As we sing this last song, reflect on this question, then ask God to give you the strength and the motivation to value his gospel above all other priorities. Father, that is our prayer, that everything in us would be directed toward your service, toward partnership in your gospel. Father, I pray that if there are any in here who have not yet believed in Jesus for eternal life, that this would be the morning They recognize that his death and resurrection on our behalf pays what we cannot owe. There's nothing we can do to earn your favor. And Father, for those of us that are here that know you, remind us of that, that we want to have the righteousness that comes from knowing Jesus Christ and not our own righteousness, that we want to then set aside the things of this world that we value, our personal rights, our personal privileges, to subordinate those your gospel. Make us faithful to do that. God, I pray from this group that you would use each of these men and women to have an impact on this campus that can only come from the power of your spirit working in us. God, we love you. We pray be with us now as we go out. In the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Y'all have a wonderful week.